Welcome to our 190th recorded webinar. Today is August 18th, 2022, uh, entitled Active Assailant Response Design. And this is part of our high performer series of the TMIT research testbed program. And we're just delighted to have uh, all of you attending uh, with us. I'm Charles Denham, I'm chairman of TMIT, and I will be uh, the coordinator and uh, master of ceremonies today. Uh, for those of you that are joining us by podcast and wish to see the slides or see the video, you can go to safetyleaders.org, www.safetyleaders.org, uh, select our webinar, uh, program uh, uh, folder, and you'll be able to uh, take advantage of the resources and the assets. For those of you that are live with us, you can download the slides as well. Uh, our focus today is on the critical design factors for these active assailant uh, uh, response systems. We're going to be addressing design principles, the issue of fixed uh, structures and dynamic systems, population kinetics, special events, unanticipated surge events, competency currency of rescue care, and the regular events that must be undertaken to do, under, undertake simulation. Now, we're very concerned in that we know that the active assailants do a tremendous amount of research before they undertake some of these initiatives. And today, our goal is, uh, is uh, that we, we seek not to share information that will help them accompli accomplish their goals. Next month, we will have a closed program where we will have uh, formal submitters to attend so that we know that we have uh, leaders, uh, patient safety leaders, security leaders from major organizations who we can verify so that uh, as we go into real a deep dive, uh, that we can uh, be, feel comfortable that we're not arming anyone who might want to harm our programs uh, and our uh, harm our centers across the country. The prior and complementary webinars that we've undertaken, we'd like to draw your attention to. Uh, first is our stressed safety, uh, our stressed emergency safety net, uh, and that was March of 2022 when we addressed the stress that are on our uh, bystander rescue care informal systems of the general public, and then law enforcement, EMS, fire, um, and also our emergency departments. Then in June of 2022, we addressed active shooter events uh, and addressed uh, kind of a high-level approach uh, to the problem. And then last month, uh, or this month in August uh, or in July, uh, we addressed uh, the issue of active uh, shooter events, prevention, preparedness, uh, uh, protection, and performance improvement. Uh, some of our speakers that we have on our speaker slide today will not be speaking today, but we put their, na their names and their pictures up because we want to draw your attention on our extended version of this, um, of, of this program, which will extend longer than 90 minutes, that we will have clips from them uh, for those of you that are listening to the podcasts. Uh, and we want to draw your attention to our prior programs because they're very much complementary to them. Paul Cross is an assistant uh, a police chief, as is uh, Vicki King with, Will, uh, with Bill Adcox, who's on live today. And we ha also have some other community leaders who will participate with us. Uh, Jennifer Dingman is uh, our voice of the patient. 
Jennifer has been a longstanding champion of patient safety. We worked with her for more than 12 years. She's the winner of the 2018 Pete Conrad Global Patient Safety Award for her work on the hospital-acquired conditions, which, have, uh, which were adopted by CMS as their pay-for-performance program. And although the final numbers aren't in, we understand that there are tens of billions of dollars with, were, that were saved, but most importantly, hundreds of thousands of lives were saved. She's an author in the patient safety literature. Uh, she also was a contributor to the National Quality Forum, Safe Practices, Patient-Centered Care version. I think very importantly, uh, Jennifer has been a steadfast supporter of so many families that have lost loved ones or have been harmed by, uh, by uh, medical accidents, uh, unintentional harm through our healthcare system. Jennifer, would you be our voice of the patient today? Thank you so much, Dr. Denham, for your kind and generous introduction. I'm here today and to welcome everyone on board to listen to this great webinar. This is really important information. The way things are going in our country, all of us need to be prepared for such things. Even though they're so horrific to even think about, it's much better to know what to do beforehand than not know when the time comes, if and when the time comes. I encourage everyone here to please share the recording with your colleagues, friends, families, and neighbors, and welcome you all again for this webinar. Looking forward to the program, and we'll be in touch again later. I'll give it back to you, Dr. Denham. Thank you, Jenny, and thank you for uh, all of the great work that you have, you've undertaken. Uh, we wanted to draw your attention to our social media uh, handles uh, uh, for those of you that are watching uh, live and those that are on the podcasts. For those that have joined us for the first time, we always want to make sure that people understand that our purpose that we try to live every day is that we will measure our success by how we will protect and enrich the lives of families patients, and caregivers. Our mission has been to accelerate performance solutions that save lives, save money, and create value in the communities we serve through the initiatives we undertake. And we try to live our core values of I care that spell I care, integrity, compassion, accountability, reliability, and entrepreneurship. Uh, do we fail every day? Sure we do, as, as we all do, but we attempt to live those values uh, uh, every day. Uh, none of our speakers, nor our speakers on our prior programs uh, on this topic, have anything to disclose. No direct, indirect, or affiliated funding has come from the pharmaceutical or the medical device uh, industry. And this program, from its origin, has been funded by uh, family philanthropy. Uh, also, uh, over the last now 37 years, we have a, a pool of subject matter experts. We lost count about five or six years ago when we had 500. There are many more. Uh, they all contribute their wonderful time and expertise. They represent clinical, operational, financial, uh, law enforcement, uh, and safety and public safety expertise. Uh, they're biomedical engineers, doctors, nurses, uh, police chiefs, such as Bill Adcox, our, our wonderful role model who will be on today. And we have more than 3,100 hospitals in over 3,000 communities we serve. Again, we, we stopped counting, and many uh, come and join us uh, 
uh, periodically. Some are regular with us, and many of you were so grateful for your attendance. Uh, our coronavirus community, a practice that we started in March of 2020, started with 60 subject matter experts from the community. You see people of all ages and, and, uh, and coming from many professions on the slide before you. For those that are on the podcast, this group has now grown to more than 130, and we have very noteworthy contributors like Sully Sullenberger, Professor Clayton Christensen, my partner at Harvard on many of the much of the work we've done, uh, Dr. Don Berwick, the former head of uh, the Centers for Medicare and Medication, uh, multiple astronauts, and then many EMTs and uh, young people have also joined us. I won't uh, rattle off our, the, the, the work that's been accomplished with the coronavirus uh, program, but for those that are viewing on the slide, uh, we've established almost 60 uh, 90-minute broadcasts and 30 Survive and Thrive programs and uh, uh, some terrific research of more than 1,000 family units uh, across the United States to understand how we can address uh, the challenges we've all faced with the pandemic. Uh, uh, we Our Survive and Thrive Guide courses have ranged from how to come home safely, how to take care of a loved one at home, how to get them to the emergency department, what to do if they're in the ICU, testing, fraud, and a whole host of topics. And we uh, our, our next will be uh, in the first Thursday of September, and hopefully uh, we'll be addressing more relaxed uh, uh, mitigation strategies, but we do know that we're having another surge uh, with the virus. We also have a youth and young adult team that is now more than 30 in number from high schools, colleges, and those that are freshly out of college and working in the community. Uh, they range from uh, 12 years of age to 30 years of age and really provide insights on how we could do a better job of getting our messages out. They represent a whole host of universities. For those on the podcast, the, there are a number of our top universities represented, and we focused on uh, what we call the five R's, uh, which are readiness, response, rescue, recovery, and resilience, and how to address the coronavirus issue. So enough on that. Let's talk about what we're really focused on today, and that, that is this emerging threat. We've had active assailant or active shooter events or lethal force uh, events that have been occurring for many years. However, uh, there's it appears, and because of the press, there's been a real uptake in, uh, uptick in those uh, numbers, and there's quite a bit of anxiety. So we put together, and thank you, Chief Adcox, for being with us today, and Dr. Boats was, is in the ICU, and we've recorded his message today, uh, but of the approximately 30 emerging threats that are keeping leaders up at night of major medical centers, a number of them include workplace violence, of which we know we've got four to five times the amount that is occurring in other industries, active shooter, violent intruder, deadly force incidents, domestic terrorism with uh, acts that might be uh, chemical, biologic, radiologic, nuclear, uh, explosive, and now transportation. Um, and so we call that cybernet. Uh, violent acts against leadership. We've had, even in our major medical centers and where I trained at Texas Medical Center, where Chief Adcox is today, we've had targeted uh, killings of, of leaders by uh, people that just, um, you know, uh, uh, decided that they were going to plan and inflict harm. So today, uh, uh, we're going to emphasize some of the issues regarding our last webinar, which was prevention, preparedness, protection, and performance improvement. Michael Dorn has advised us all along the way since 2015, and Chief Adcox, many thanks for introducing us to Michael Dorn. 
probably the leading person in the world on active shooter events, uh, written multiple books. And we'd like to draw your attention to his, uh, his uh, uh, recent book, uh, Extreme Violence. Uh, it can be purchased over the web. Uh, and he is uh, uh, with uh, uh, and has co-written this book with others, uh, a real exhaustive review of these challenges that we face in terms of active assailants, hate crimes, terrorist attacks, et cetera. We've learned so much from Michael. And we want to draw your attention to our last webinar. I'm at 12 minutes after our kickoff here, but I do want to take a minute or two just to put up for those that can see the screen um, how we mapped prevention, preparedness, protection, and performance improvement against leadership practices and technologies, which is really where the sweet spot of high performance lives. And we had uh, Michael take a deep dive on each of these topics. And I really recommend that you go back and listen to Michael and those that are uh, will be part of uh, watching our extended program uh, on the podcast, you'll hear from Michael uh, multiple times. We really highly, highly recommend uh, that uh, you listen to him. Uh, what we asked Dr. Boats to do, and, and because the topic today is really critical factors and addressing the static and dynamic nature, static and dynamic nature uh, of what's, uh, what's going on here, uh, Dr. Boats said, you know, the next thing we need to cover is really the fact that the populations are moving and to come up with a plan that is a static off the shelf or occasional event planning is, is really doesn't address a lot of what is critical about the dynamic nature of things. Um, we have uh, uh, Randy Steiner, who is the head of emergency response for the, uh, the University of California, Irvine, who we're working with in terms of research and a number of areas. So what we did just to draw your attention to what the fluid nature of the, of the population kinetics are and the fact that, as Dr. Boat said, we've really got to look at the dynamic issues. We'll show a short time-lapse video of the University of California uh, at, at Irvine right now. So this video really kind of captures the essence of what we'll talk about special events as well, uh, and the fact that, uh, that we have to look at the population kinetics of these large events. This is a microcosm of what might happen throughout, uh, throughout the day, week, year uh, at an organization. Uh, I'm going to ask Dr. Boats to take 10 minutes and just cover the topics that we uh, teed up for today's discussion and then uh, have Chief Adcox respond to what he hears from Dr. Boats. And then we'll take a deep dive with uh, Randy Steiner.
Dr. Motes, thank you so much for working with us today. We know that you're in the ICU as we present this. And the nature of and description of this program really was uh, developed in our conversation about the importance between static uh, structures and dynamic systems. And thank you very much for that. Uh, if you were to describe that, what would you describe? Well, thanks for inviting me to join this event today. I think the essence of static and dynamic approaches to any of these events that one might encounter, whether it's a family event or an organizational event, is that uh, we have a known amount of vulnerability on our real estate for uh, problems that could present, uh, especially medical problems. And uh, so we plan for how to best position uh, equipment, supplies, and personnel to meet those vulnerabilities. However, there are times in which those vulnerabilities may change. For instance, you may have a large gathering, um, a special event on part of your property that perhaps is not occupied usually. And so you need to pre-plan to move the equipment, the supplies, and the personnel um, to meet the vulnerability in that area for that amount of time. And so that's the dynamic approach where you do a pre-event assessment and stage your resources appropriately in order to best respond to any acute event that might occur during that event. Greg, we're gonna be reviewing a number of the concepts and the, the tools that we use in dealing with emerging threats. Is it important that organizations really have a set of tools and a toolbox to apply uh, to these emerging threats? Absolutely, I think that having a, an approach and a toolkit that one can use to uh, evaluate your vulnerabilities and have an idea about how to best place your resources for such events is, is crucial to the uh, ongoing operations for any organization. We certainly do it in my institution when there are uh, events that can occur outside of normal operations where we find increased vulnerability. We may move the Code Blue team or we may position a medical team in an area where there's an increase in vulnerability because of uh, people uh, who are on campus for a particular event. We like to use the term population kinetics to talk about the movement of people and the fact that that's just not a steady state flow. Even though one may think it is, uh, there's pretty wide variability in most organizations, isn't there, in terms of population kinetics and flow? Well, that's absolutely true. I think you can gauge the normal kinetics for an organizational's operations based on, say, how many clinic visits there might be or how busy the emergency department or operating room might be at various times of the day. Uh, but there are also other kinetics that are involved perhaps uh, in addition to that. Like in my institution, when we have a, a continuing medical education event in one of our ballrooms, we have several hundred people there attending the event that have some sort of vulnerability, but they're not there five days a week or seven days a week, like perhaps our regular operations might be. So we plan accordingly. And when we use the term special events, sometimes there are really special events that are enormously taxing, like graduations and uh, and at faith-based organizations, Christmas and Easter and other events, when not only do we have to move assets around, but actually have to scale up staff, fair statement. And is it reasonable to, to, to plan those ahead? 
Oh, absolutely, sure. Uh, as part of any preparation for a special event in your organization, whether it's a school or a faith-based organization or a business, uh, it takes a bit of preparation. Uh, we use the incident command structure to approach the risk and vulnerability assessment for any event and decide how to pre-plan, pre-place, and pre-position um, both equipment and supplies and the right people in order to meet the needs that we perceive um, are our greatest vulnerabilities. What about the unscheduled surge events that occur as they did through COVID when we have all of a sudden a big surge and overload, but might be related to uh, weather or you're in the hurricane belt, uh, uh, those kinds of things, those unscheduled surge events? Well, absolutely, we need to plan those. Certainly uh, here in Houston, we have a hurricane season every year, but we also have uh, issues with, uh, with flooding, uh, with, with rain events. We have special events that occur through the city um, the Houston Marathon is perhaps one of those events that both disrupts traffic, um, but also adds a great deal of vulnerability to the medical system for both response um, and access uh, in such a large endeavor. Um, those are things that perhaps aren't necessarily planned. They may happen pretty quickly, but we have to have perhaps an all hazards approach to such events where we can meet 80% of the needs of any event, no matter what it is, and then tailor the 20% more specifically to whatever the specific event needs and vulnerabilities might be. There's a term that you and I've used in our writing and that we frequently use when we talk to people about our skills and the fact that, um, that we need to maintain uh, competency currency. Do you wanna define it and why it's so important? Sure, we, we've borrowed competency currency from aviation, where it's been a safety feature and, and framework for many years. It's very translatable to healthcare as well. And competency is the acquisition of knowledge and skills for whatever task, or whether it's a procedure or a medical problem that might come to bear. And uh, everyone is expected to perhaps periodically retool and learn the science and the skills behind the approach to whatever the problem might be. But Beyond that, we need to have currency, which is a state of readiness. It's having practiced that on a regular basis in order to be ready to provide that care uh, when needed. So competency is being ready. Currency is practicing our readiness. And as a pilot, and then also someone that with you and under your mentorship teaches uh, CPR and uh, uh, stop the bleed, uh, these skills are perishable and now have been shown in studies to be perishable. Is that a fair statement? It's absolutely fair. Um, knowledge uh, is perishable. Skills are perishable if you don't practice them. I think there's good data from the educational literature looking at the stickiness, if you will, of certain tasks, uh, information, and skills, uh, depending on how we learn them. Things that we read and hear, perhaps, could be as much as 10 to 20% sticky, whereas something that we actually practice in a simulated event can be uh, more of an active learning uh, skill that can have as much as 70 to 90% stickiness, if you will. And so it's very important that when we have low frequency, high impact events for which we have training, that we invest the time to periodically practice those skills 
especially the teamwork and communication in order to be the high reliability team that we want to be in order to provide the best care when it's needed. The concept, and you are one of the few physicians that has done a, a full fellowship in simulation and have taught us so much about the concept of uh, simulation, but also deliberative practice. Uh, when we talk about regular simulation events, what does this term deliberative practice mean? Well, deliberate practice comes from the psychology literature uh, from many years ago, and it really speaks to expert performance. It says that in order to maintain your skills and knowledge to be able to perform in an expert fashion, you have to practice. And you have to practice at an interval that keeps those skills at its highest reliable state for performance. And so deliberate practice for me is to find an interval at which our trainees, our practitioners, um, our colleagues um, practice these skills in order for it to be maybe muscle memory that they're able to do without having to think, hmm, what's my next step or being afraid of making a mistake. Athletes do this, you know, professional teams like uh, car racing teams and, and others use deliberate practice uh, in order to be at the top of their game. Well, Dr. Boats, thank you so much for uh, the 15 minute conversation that we had uh, now in 2015, so many years ago, when you said, can I bring up a topic which led us to talk with uh, Michael Dorn and MedTech Evolve from it. And uh, this month, um, you know, because of the deliberative practice and the training that we give in, in, in MedTech, uh, I was able to, to perform the Heimlich maneuver on my son who had a near fatal choking. And were it not for the training that that you've led us to learn how to deliver and uh, and having the comfort and just fall back on the training, I don't think it would have turned out as well as it did. And then last week at a head on car crash that happened just uh, in front of us, many of the MedTech skills came right to focus when I had to extract a lady from a car who was trapped and a car was starting to catch fire. And uh, so I thank you for uh, teaching us what you have and helping us uh, build these skills and, and, and refine them. So thank you very much. Well, thank you. So Dr. Boats is, uh, is at ICU now. We, th this gives us uh, kind of the opportunity to really address these uh, design uh, principles, uh, the structures and systems, kinetics, special events, unanticipated surge events, competency, currency, and regular simulation. Uh, uh, Bill Adcox, uh, would you please kind of give us uh, 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 your reflections on uh, on what you all are doing at MD Anderson before we dive into uh, uh, detail on each of these topics? Well, thank you very much, Dr. Denham, uh, for, for having us on the uh, program again. Um, we at MD Anderson are, uh, are working on uh, uh, multiple avenues in terms of workplace violence and active assailant. Um, we are conducting uh, exercises as I speak uh, throughout the clinical areas. Uh, we, we've developed this particular system in order to do that. Uh, we are we are prepared. We are developed an extremely robust workplace violence prevention program that's that's very integrated and intertwined throughout the entire uh, organization. 
a multidisciplinary cross-functional uh, team uh, that's involved in that and um, putting a, a tremendous amount of time and effort into, into that, particularly in the identification of an issue before it becomes a, a true crisis or, or tragedy. Um, so we are, we, we're doing quite a bit. In fact, uh, today we're also training Harris County wide uh, with the uh, Harris County District Attorney's Office has put together a, a combined coordination training for all the law enforcement agencies. And we are obviously engaged with that. So uh, we are very, very um, engaged and doing, uh, doing uh, a lot of issues in terms of, of uh, being able to deal with an active assailant. Great, Bill. And uh, what I'd love to do is uh, is just now address um, uh, some of the articles that we have uh, have written uh, together. Uh, we now have about one more and two, actually two in the pipeline. But there were three articles that 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 you and Chief Adcox and Charlie and I wrote. One on active shooter uh, events. Uh, one on rapid response teams and one on automatic uh, external defibrillators uh, uh, that uh, uh, we addressed that really are pertinent to this topic. The others were on some other topics, but um, uh, you know, in the hospitals, we've got a, a dramatically different situation than in the schools. And so what we did in the one article, which we highly recommend, they're free, you can download them and they'll be posted on the website as well. And for those that are uh, listening to the uh, podcast, um, we took an article entitled Active Shooter Response uh, at the at Healthcare Facilities. Uh, and uh, this uh, uh, this uh, article, and I'll kind of tee this uh, back up uh, so that people can see uh, those that are watching. The article it was entitled Active Shooter Response at a Healthcare Facility in the New England Journal of Medicine. What we did was we wrote a campus safety article, a campus safety magazine article, kind of addressing and, and, and reinforcing some of the principles. And one of them was that the secure, the quote, secure, preserve, fight unquotes approach, which is a different approach than the run hide fight, does offer good strategic framework to reduce potential harm if the work is planned carefully, designed thoughtfully, uh, and recurrent training is, is uh, prioritized. And what we did uh, in that article was, uh, was really kind of address some uh, 10 really critical issues. One is the active shooter's motives are usually much more personal, targeted, and focused. They're looking for somebody to shoot or to harm, either with a knife. And we recently saw what happened in New York uh, uh, with uh, Salman Rusky and, and what, what happened there. We actually had one of our teammates was in the audience and saw that, uh, that what happened there. Um, Second is uh, necessary security measures are often harder to undertake. And Bill, I'm gonna come back to you here in just a minute to have you kind of address what's really different that we really need to be, be cognizant of with our, at our medical centers. Healthcare providers feel compelled to stay with their patients. Certain patients will die without continued life support in the ICUs. You know, we can't turn off the power, which uh, you will address in a moment. Certain areas of the hospitals are not easy to harden or evacuate. Most of the hospitals are organized vertically and rely heavily on the ele elevators, different than some buildings. Emergency departments may lock down or shut down during an event. And then that way, you actually can't get people into the emergency department. You're relying on that outside safety net. 
The violence could end in less than 10 minutes. And we've heard from Michael Dorn that it could be a matter of, uh, of two or three minutes. Uh, but the healthcare delivery disruption could be very prolonged. Healthcare shootings occur at entrances and, or just outside of buildings, and the healthcare facilities cannot be easily shut down for training. So in the article, they address this issue of secure, preserve, uh, fight, uh, and you can read in more detail. Um, we also addressed in the second article I addressed there uh, of using rapid response teams and training with rapid response teams uh, to define the risks, evaluate how you can get care to any victim within three minutes. We know that three minutes from drop to shock for a, a, um, a cardiac rhythm that is shockable uh, can have an enormous impact on survival. RAEDs and care supplies, such as stop the bleed supplies, position within three minutes of the victims, even if you've got barriers in place. And do your players from the various departments regularly practice? Um, and then finally, and Bill, I'm going to come back to you. We wrote the article on inadequate placement of AEDs and bleeding control gear could cost you. And we were basically addressing as the, the fact that the standard of care is rising. Uh, the lawsuits regarding automatic defibrillators and rescue gear are not lawsuits about them not functioning well, but actually that they're locked up, that they might be within 100 meters uh, of, uh, of a victim, but they're locked up and something happens uh, after, uh, after regular hours. Uh, so we addressed uh, these in these articles. And Bill, I'd just like to have you kind of uh, just reinforce the differences of what you deal with at the medical center, where we can't just trust what we see in the press about schools. And, you, you know, you got a dramatically different set of circumstances in medical centers, and they're very unique, as Mike said, Michael, Michael Doran said. Well, they are. You, your, your special events will be different than your, your public schools. It will be different than your hospitals. In fact, even in your public schools, elementary schools, different than your middle school, different than your high schools. And so these, these different approaches that are being mentioned, whether it's run, hide, fight, or, or some of the others, and there's 15 or 20 of these approaches, they have a lot of the same, uh, it's the same concept, a lot of the same principles. But the thing to remember is, is, that, is that you need to adapt those to your individual environment. And they're not linear. You're not supposed to do one before you go do the other one. And you need to build into where, where whoever's involved in the situation can use judgment, uh, can, can, can decide based on the proximity of the assailant and the circumstances that they're in and, and the building, what they should do. So when we think about a hospital, a hospital, we have people from, from all walks of life, from, from all over the world that are coming in. They, a lot of them are very, very troubled by their illness. They don't know what's going on. So they're right. They're, they're, they're very, very stressed and very troubled. And uh, they're, all, they're all throughout the hospital. It's very difficult to have any level of real communication with them if something does happen. Um, it's very difficult for us to get messages out to everybody, uh, even, even through the use of a PA system. Uh, they're very opening environments and that's what they're designed for. Hospitals are very opening environments. And I do think that, that we're gonna see a little bit of a tweaking of that in the future as we go on, uh, based on being in this long-term pandemic, perhaps endemic time now as well as the active shooters, threats, and the fact that violent crime across the country is, is, rised, is, is, is risen such, at such a rate and it stays high. So we'll probably see some of that changing uh, with different visitor management uh, uh, techniques and, and systems, probably a lot more weapons detection systems we placed in, into uh, order. But you're seeing just a different environment. 
And so we have to do that. The other thing is, is hospitals are 100% operational. You can't shut down a hospital to go do training. And that's very difficult. You know, they just don't have a lot of unused capacity. And, and, and you know, for whatever reason, and that's debatable, but they do not have a lot of unused capacity. So it's really difficult to shut it down. And the other thing is a lot of folks that are in these hospitals that are being treated are very immobile. They just can't move. You just can't move them. So when we have a fire, for example, our protocol is just that we move them vertically. We don't we don't move them horizontally. I mean, there's there's certain things that are put into place. Lots of systems that are in place to protect these patients in, in many ways. So re so really, you really need to bring in the right people to help you that understand your environment, that and that can go deep down into the weeds and find out exactly what's going on, and and so that you're looking at the psychological impact of whatever training and drills you're doing. So that you're using the same uh, the same terminology, you're using the same semantics, that you're using the same things. What, what a drill might not be a drill to a drill, and so that's why we get so much uh, mixed messages when they're out there. And when you're dealing with certain people, like in in a in a school, you probably don't want any elementary children involved in a lot of these really active drills. When you have actors that are on scene, they're pretending to be the active assailant. You've got the screaming, you've got the actual thing. You probably do not want a small child involved in that. So generally, you'll empty a school out. They'll bring in perhaps mostly the student, mostly of the, the, the teachers and the staff will be volunteers. They'll do it after hours. Bring in your, your law enforcement, your EMS, your fire, your, your other planners, your emergency management experts, and they'll bring them in and do the drills so that they really understand. And then they'll, they'll, they'll do fidelity testing. They'll do different drills. Okay, today, the active, right now, the active assailant is here and doing this. Okay, now they're here. Now it's two active assailants. Now uh, it's coming through this area. So they keep changing it up so that you don't get comfortable thinking that one size fits all, uh, much like we do with fire drills. Fire drills are a little bit different. And, we, and so you can't take that into consideration when you're, when you're trying to train around an active assailant. And because of the fact that the, the chances in a public school of having an active shooter, albeit, tra albeit tragic and horrible and gets news around the clock, news feeds, um, the, the, the chances are, uh, probabilities is pretty low. So you wanna make sure that you're, you're considering the psychological impact and the long-term impact and that you're doing it right. Fantastic, Bill. Absolutely. So, so Bill, what we'll do is uh, we're going to take a deep dive now with Randy Steiner. And uh, for those of you that are watching live, we res we're respectful of your continuing medical education and nursing education uh, focus and that you've got shifts and you've got teams. So uh, just before we finish, Bill, we're going to come back to you and stop uh, our recorded, uh, recorded session with uh, Randy Steiner to get your reaction. So thank you very much. We're going to put Randy on right now and, uh, uh, and uh, go from there. But uh, great comments. Uh, we really appreciate it. Bill. So Randy Steiner is the uh, is the uh, emergency uh, response leader for the University of California, Irvine, where I am here in in uh, Orange County. And we're going to have him actually tell a little bit of his story because it's a very powerful story. So Randy, thank you so very much for uh, spending time with us today. You are uh, really at the tip of the spear and a critical leader at one of our major medical centers and major universities, the entire campus. Uh, can you frame for us what your job entails? 
Yeah, I'm the director of emergency management for the University of California, Irvine. So I'm responsible for the preparedness and uh, capability to respond to disasters on the UCI campus, as well as providing training and exercises to our campus community, as well as our uh, emergency response team, our EOC uh, staff, our, our field staff, our staging area managers, all those kind of things to prepare the campus for a, a large scale event or any event that is, you know, significant to the campus. You know, we, we uh, have a, a whole system of being able to deal with emergencies on all levels and doing, you know, immediate assessment and determining how to move forward on these emergencies. We bring in all of our campus leadership. Uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful place, uh, UCI, just because of the the, the, the buy-in and the support from my leadership, um, you know, in the campus are really see the importance of programs like this. So I'm very fortunate to have that We're you know, we're, we're a small city. I, I grew up in a, in Lincoln, Nebraska, which was about a uh, 120 or so thousand people. And there's a, the University of California, Irvine is probably about half as big as that. So it's, it's a large place. It's the biggest employer in Orange County. Uh, it has a huge, diverse population, uh, so it requires you know a, a little bit of of skill and finesse to really get the message of preparedness out. So it's it's really a challenging job, but I love it. I love coming to work every day. Well, Randy, it uh, it has been such a joy to work with you in so many different ways in our work with you at UCI and in support of the EMT club there. But also uh, you're a community leader uh, as one of our leaders in scouting and uh, have helped us with search and rescue merit badge development and also uh, mentoring our uh, life scouts that become Eagle Scouts by putting in rescue stations through our MedTech program. Can you give us, uh, uh, can you tell your story a little bit of what happened to you as, uh, as a child and your family's contributions to our national system? I, I think uh, you're so humble that unless I ask you, uh, people won't know it. Well, as, when I was a, a young child, I was involved in a, an airplane crash in uh, Lincoln, Nebraska. My family and I were flying back from California um, on our little uh, Beechcraft Baron um, aircraft, little six-seater aircraft, twin engines. Um, and uh, we ran into some weather near uh, the, a little town called Heber, Nebraska, in the very rural part of Nebraska. This was in the middle of winter. It was uh, uh, mid-February. It was very cold. We, uh, we uh, put our plane down in the field. Um, my father and all my, my family, for the most part, survived. My mother was killed instantly. Um, however, my uh, three siblings and myself sustained serious injuries, but we were alive. My, my father, who was a, a surgeon, an orthopedic surgeon at uh, Lincoln General Hospital in the town of Lincoln, Nebraska, about um, you know, 80 miles away from where we were, uh, he managed to triage us. He managed to do, do an initial assessment, treatment, uh, got us back into the airplane. The airplane was still intact and uh, used that for shelter. Um, we were out in that field for about eight hours. This happened about six o'clock at night when the plane went down. And then darkness came in and it was very cold. And my father uh, was able to um, eventually, because of the darkness, he was uh, afraid to navigate out into the middle of this field for for fear of losing track of the airplane and and being lost and perishing. And it was cold enough for that to happen. 
Um, but at one point at, at the night, about 2 a.m., um, the moon came out, the overcast that we had run into had broken up. Big full moon came out. He was able to actually see he was having his some of his injuries made that very difficult. But he decided um, after eight hours of sitting there without rescue that he would go and try and get help. Uh, he managed to flag down a car at a, at a nearby highway about a mile away from us. And they came back to the crash and extricated us and got us to the uh, local hospital in Heber, Nebraska. And uh, at that point, a very small, very rural hospital. We took them completely by surprise. So they were um, automatically behind the eight ball with us. The medical staff were not present at the hospital. They were called in in situations like this. But normally there was a warning through radio or something. At any rate, my, my father found the condition at the hospital uh, lacking in terms of being able to provide us the supportive care we needed. <clears throat> um, and through some discussion, he was able to uh, have a, a local sheriff uh, arrange for a National Guard helicopter to come down and, and transport us from the small hospital in Hebron to the big hospital in Lincoln. Um, during that time following that, uh, we all survived after that, you know, except my mother, who was killed instantly. Um, but um, in the days following the event, my father was very you know, confused about the, the lack of the level of care that we, we received and uh, the lack of what he saw as, as a, a standard that, you know, this little hospital was doing things that they were doing a long time ago where, you know, this hospital in Lincoln, not very far away, was doing really important things with regard to trauma care and, and what to, you know, how to treat a person and how to assess a person. Um, but he had a, a colleague named Ron Craig who had come up with this idea about standardization of the uh, the trauma assessment process, where instead of the head to toe assessment, which really wasn't very uh, effective, it was you know in some cases. But if the patient was suffering a critical injury, you know to their the bottom part of their body, it took a while to get down there, and a lot of times patients could die you know in the process of doing that. So they wanted to streamline that and provide a, a constant system of care. And that's where they came up with the idea of ATLS, Advanced Trauma Life Support. My father was one of the three um, medical professionals that kind of came together to develop the syllabus of that course. And they put that together and got it to the American College of Surgeons and the Department of Defense and all over the world. And it's now the standard of trauma care uh, throughout the, the country. I don't know how much of a, a piece I had about that. I mean, I wrote a book about it and tried to you know, spread the word on on the people and give credit to the people who are responsible, not only for HLS, but the people who came to our aid that night. But, um, you know, I guess I was kind of a test case of how, to, how, that, uh, how that all came about. But yeah, that I think that the, the background of that, my, um, you know, my sort of admiration for these people who really, you know, gave up large portions of their life to 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 create this, sort of give this to humanity, and it, you know, for for free, like what we're doing now is, you know, nobody's asking for anything. It just needed to be done, and and they did it, made their lives easier in the in the end. But um, I think that that seeing that and dealing with these people really is is what made me really go into this job that I'm at now that I've been doing for the last twenty two years in emergency management, and you know, something I'm very passionate about is is you know creating these systems and, and improving the processes to, to make sure that everybody in a disaster situation has the same information and can, can respond appropriately. Well, fantastic. And you're also a Marine. You've uh, gone through uh, uh, the military and, and learned discipline there. So as we talk about our first topic, uh, which, which are the design principles 
that we need to use as we put together a response system, not only for active assailants, but also for other emergencies. You're responsible for far more than these low frequency but high impact events. There are many events that you, for which you're responsible. Uh, just a parenthetical question. Um, the tools we'll review today, using these to engineer our response systems, how important are they that people really use a systematic approach? I think it's really important, you know, because I believe that that systematic approach, you know, makes it possible for us to both bring, you know, best practices in and send best practices out as we develop these things. Um, you know, a, a system is a chain of things, right? It's a whole bunch of things that come together in a certain way. But the great thing about systems is that, you know, those links can be changed over time. So, you know, having those systems and, and, you know, developing those systems and continually maintaining those systems is super important because those are where those best practices, I think, are. So, you know, having, but being able to implement those systems is, is you know, beyond important as well. You know, learning the, the, the lessons from one institution, in this case, you know, in my case, higher education and things that work and things that, that they've tried out, being able to implement that you know, without having to go through the guesswork or spending, you know, money that you, you didn't need to spend um, to to implement these things is, is super important. But it's the going through that process is what's really important, you know, and, and that process may entail an assessment to look at things. And, you know, you may come up with, you know what, our structure of our building, for example, or the way the hallways are set up that, you know, that that's defensible space. We can, we can use that as it is, but we may come up with, with other things to say, you know what, the approach to this building is too open or the, the, you know, the windows on this side create a vulnerability for somebody in an active assailant event. Um, being able to, you know, to take those systems that work and, and the, the things that other institutions have already looked at and, and implementing those, I think, is, is a really big deal. And it's got to be part of the process. Doing that assessment, not doing that assessment is, is, not, is not an answer. We have to do these and, and look at these engineering pieces and how everything comes together to, to provide the best possible protection. So one concept we're using with you at uh, at UCI and we're using with uh, uh, virtually all of our programs is idealized design that was pioneered by Bell Labs. Uh, this idea of what would you design if you had unlimited triple T, talent, time, and treasure, and then work back from there rather than forward from the systems we have today. Um, we think it's pretty valuable. What do you think? I, I do, yeah. And, and you know, the, and those... The, the evolution of those processes makes it more and more possible to implement, you know, a university like, like UCI or, or any of the UCs, I know for particularly, and probably most of the, the large colleges, you know, the aesthetics of the campus is a very important thing. You know, it's, it's a big part of the appeal and people like the open design and the freedom of the campus, you know, that, that big kind of open campus um, concept. But, you know, when we talked about you know, engineering protections, I mean, when I was in Saudi Arabia during Desert Shield and Desert Storm, that it, it consisted of concrete barricades that the car had to swerve around and they they weren't very pretty. Um, but, you know, you look at some of the like the some of the bases that were designed and built in, in Afghanistan or Iraq, it, you know, you really wouldn't even be able to tell that the same concepts are being implemented but the engineering was so subtle and, and the development was more, you know, of that architectural appealing kind of element that they didn't want to look like a prison. 
but those elements were there. You know, there were ways where you could, you know, actively defend the base and slow an attacker down without, you know, putting up big concrete barriers. So, you know, those, I think those elements are there. Um, and it's possible to design, you know, safety into structure. Um, the, the issue that we have, of course, is that we have you know, the majority of our buildings on campus are already built and they're, they're already designed without those elements in place. So now the challenge becomes how do we implement those processes, you know, as we redesign buildings or refurbish buildings or, or do other things, how, how can we implement those processes without making the university seem like a dangerous place, you know, without saying, you know, we're, we're, we're taking all, making all these steps to prevent an active shooter that can translate to, well, you know, why are you so worried about an active shooter on this campus? You know, it's, and the fact is where everybody should be, every university is vulnerable to that, that potential impact or that, that, that incident. Um, but I think it's possible to do that. And once again, that goes back to this best practices, using that system of, of, you know, research and design to, really look at those best practices and to come back with, you know, good ways of doing that without, you know, seriously impacting what makes the university desirable to attend in the first place. It's a real balance. So uh, one of the things that we believe wholeheartedly and we learn in patient safety is that the high performance envelope or the sweet spot of high performance in healthcare and aviation and Formula One and NASCAR in any of these um, highly risky but highly rewarding and high performance activities is that it's at the intersection of leadership practices and technologies, meaning that leaders at the top, leaders in the middle, frontline servant leaders, but it's at the interface of those, the best or better practices. And we know we're at the beginning of the beginning here with the active assailant area. We know that from Mike Dorn in our prior webinars. And then technologies that enable the best practices. We have a case of magical thinking sometimes if we buy some expensive system that all of a sudden we don't have to focus on leadership and the best practices. So your comments on the sweet spot between leadership practices and technologies, you agree? Yeah. It, it, that is is truly a balance, um, you know, because those things all kind of fit together but they're very it's a it's a very tenuous relationship obviously without the leadership buy-in you're not going anywhere with your project they they you know give the approvals they provide the funding without that leadership buy-in you, you need to do that but the leadership I, I in a place like uci our leadership is very they they take these things very seriously they do not make you know snap decisions on things they want to analyze and make sure that everything about the process is is the right thing for the university as a whole <laughs> Our campus community. So, although you know an idea may seem fine, something like uh, you know, let's let's put up more cameras. You know, let's do card access. You know, things like that. Things that, from a perspective like mine, from more of a a, a site security kind of you know prevention of entry um, perspective, make perfect sense. But in the largest campus community, it's it's it becomes a much bigger issue. There are issues of privacy. Uh, privacy on college campuses is a huge thing. And, you know, a lot of people don't want to people to know when I go in and out of my, my, my laboratory or whenever. And that's not necessarily because I don't want the boss knowing what I'm doing. It's, it's that, you know, security issues around that, that, you know, I need privacy to conduct this type of research. We have that, you know, sensitive research that occurs on campus that requires that. So it's not just as easy as putting cameras up or, you know, putting door locks in or, or being able to lock down all our buildings, 
you know, there's going to be, uh, there's got to be a balance struck there. Right. So, you know, even though the technology exists to harden these facilities, you're not always going to be able to get buy-in for that. So the question is, what do you do? And how do you strike that balance um, between, you know, what is needed and what can be done is, is, is a huge challenge. And it's something we work with every day. There's no easy answer to it. That's for right. sure. Having that chain and having the discussion, you know, from top to bottom, that's where you find that sweet spot. You know, you, you don't say, okay, I found a sweet spot down here, but my leadership doesn't agree with it. Then it's not a sweet spot. It's, you know, it's all of those pieces have to come together. And there's a lot of moving parts to all of those that you have to consider. It's never just as easy as, oh, let's throw in some more cameras or let's throw the ability to automatically lock down a building. It's, everything has, you know, some alternate you know, impact that, that we have to consider. And that's, that's a big, that's a big challenge. It's a big process. Fantastic. Uh, uh, next is really the source of information and how critical it is to get the source of information regarding safety and re these response systems and not rely on, uh, you know, we, we go through some of the things that we've learned about from journalists about the press, uh, uh, but it's important to understand misinformation, disinformation, malinformation, and what some critics of the press would say, uh, you know, if, you know, their rules are, if it bleeds, it leads, never let the facts get between you and a good story. And a good story is about uh, contradiction, conflict, and corruption. Um, it's pretty important, isn't it, that we really rely on the experts who don't have a dog in the fight, who really are based on the good in science and and the fundamentals and and just not be too distracted by the the press events around these terrible events that have occurred. Yeah, yeah, that's very important. And that does come to, you know, it it, it comes into play, you know, on a on a college campus. We have, you know, the benefit on a college campus of having fairly a fairly captive community that we can, you know, disseminate information to, you know, fairly easily through our typical, you know, newsletters and things, you know, we can work with our campus housing to get a message out to the students or, or to, you know, through our academic affairs to get a message to our faculty and, you know, through our administrative office, to get messages to our staff. And we have lots of, of um, ways to disseminate that information, but it's still a challenge because there's so much different disinformation out there. I mean, we, we live in what I call the disinformation age. It's, you know, where, the, you know, the, 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 we've always said that with the media, like you said, it's always got to be, you know, the sort of big flash story that's the important one, you know, particularly if death or bleeding or anything like that is involved, like you kind of alluded to, the more chaotic the basis of the story is, the better. That's been happening in the media for a long time. But now with the Internet and with this, where anybody who wants can throw whatever information they want, and it gets so harder, so much harder and so much harder to to disseminate and be able to filter through what's real information and what's false information that that adds a big challenge to it. Um, so we just have to really, in our community, we really have to get the information out. And we have a whole strategic communications group that we work with all the time to, 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 to develop these messages and to, to, you know, to make them effective. But, you know, we just have to keep pushing you know, the, the, the facts as we know it, and like, like you alluded to, we have to follow the science on things and make decisions based on that. Fortunately, you know, at a university, generally, 
the leadership is fairly academic <laughs> where they come from a, a, a pretty serious academic and a lot of times scientific background. So their support of, of the messaging and that from that perspective is always, you know, pretty, pretty solid. Um, but the, the, you know, outside of a university setting in a municipal setting or, or, you know, a private industry setting, that can be a very difficult thing to get to, um, you know, to get that, that, that good information out to people is it's so important that everybody's on the right page when, you know, an event happens like an active shooter, an active assailant, when you get the information, the direction of people, it's stuff they got to do now. And it can't be a, you know, oh, let's sit here and analyze this and see if they're telling us the truth kind of thing. Get, having that level of trust with the people you're getting that message out to is super important. And unfortunately, with a lot of the the the, the avenues and channels of messaging that is going out to the general population in the world, it's it's uh you know it's it, it's there is no trust because people believe something and then two days later they found out what they were believed wasn't true and it's you know so developing that trust and keeping that trust is just becoming more and more challenging but we we still try we we think we have a a pretty um good level of of trust and understanding with our our population here on campus because we really stick to the facts and stick to the science and you know try not to we have no reason to sensationalize things we're not selling anything yeah, it's so good. And, you know, we uh, we always say that they're attacking the amygdala, the threat center in the brain. And we've been just barraged over the last more than two and a half years in COVID, for instance. And people are just I think that they're just getting to the point where they just have been over. There's just been over. We've over been over threatened. And now we just throw up our hands and we can't do that with these these events. Next topic is really having good performance measures. And we in patient safety for many years developed one that we used as we helped develop the LeapFrog Group program and the NQF safe practices and worked with the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid. And that is, we, we say OPSI for short, O-P-S-E, which is really outcomes, process, structure, and experience measures. And so as we build these systems, being able to look at the finite outcomes of what can happen or what would happen we want to prevent, the process measures that are surrogates for the outcomes, because sometimes we can only measure those processes, especially as in we look at prevention, and then the structure measures, meaning is a structure in place or is it not? For instance, in hospitals, do we have a patient safety officer with accountability or not? Are there incentives that are tied to senior executives to perform or not? And then experience measures are both the experience of those who are the customers, in your case, the students that are flowing through the university or patients in the medical center, and then those that are actually working there uh, and being able to optimize their experience. If we can make their experience better and they, they're all customers, then the whole system wins. Is it, so the so the short answer, the short question is the importance of very clear performance measures that we measure ourselves against, that we target. I think it's, you know, the, that sort of goes back to the standards, right? And and setting up the standards within the system that we've been kind of talking about and building up to, you know, the, there there are metrics that, that you, you can't oppose. Are you three minutes if, from getting shot or having a heart attack to having an AED? That's, that either, it either is or it isn't. So, you know, knowing those, those metrics and being able to apply those you know, is really important. That requires a level of assessment. That requires a level of, of, of work to be done around the campus. 
Um, but you know, things like that are, are, are indisputable. And that's, that's kind of where you have to start. I think, you know, when we go back to the messaging and, and the buy-in factors and, and being able to get people on board with, with, you know, the ideas of how to make the campus safe, nobody is opposed to making a campus safe. The, 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 the conflict is in how do we do that and what's the best way to do that? And where's the best place to spend resources, um, to, to make that happen. So, starting with the metrics like that are, are very, I think, a really important part in understanding those metrics. You know, being able to, um, you know, explain those in a way all the way up the chain to all the different camp, you know, people in the campus community and all the stakeholders, I think is also important too. You know, fortunately, um, in a in a campus community, like I, I said, there's there's a lot of support, you know, throughout the process with regard to, um, making the campus safe. So we have a lot of room to have these discussions and to say, you know, how do we do this? Okay, we know that this area of the campus is is not adequate with regard to stop the bleed kits or AEDs uh, or, or messaging, even for that matter. You know, uh, how do you evacuate a building? Is it consistent across the campus? And, you know, the, figuring that those things out and, and, Developing a standard process, I think, is is really important, and you know, explaining that and communicating that up and down the chain um, is 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 a really big deal. Um, and for a lot of these things, a lot you know, the, these these events, you know, we we are, I think, emergency management is kind of it's hard to say. It's they, we 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 kind of created this system of this concept of all hazards events plan should be based on all hazards events. And I get that. The idea is that if there's an emergency, we just activate the EOC and no matter what the emergency is, we'll be able to, to deal with it. And I agree with that to a large extent. I, I say in my trainings that, you know, if you set the table right, it doesn't matter what they bring in to eat, you're going to eat having those, 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 those processes in place. But there's, there's like, we've been talking about this whole conversation. There, there's gotta be balance there. You know, there are nuances to different types of emergencies. An earthquake is different than a fire or an evacuation. You know, an active assailant event is an incident all by itself. It's a completely different thing. That's going to be, you know, done most likely before we can even fire up our, our you know, emergency response capability at that point. And then what's the responsibility of, of you know, emergency management? Okay, we activate the EOC, but what are we going to be looking at? We have to you know, think about those things because it's not going to be tactical. It's going to be, you know, we're going to be setting up family assistance centers. We're going to be setting up media centers and, you know, we're going to be planning for memorial events that happen, you know, that uh, all the time with these, unfortunately, I hate to say all the time, but it seems like it's becoming all the time, but they, these types of events, you know, they're events within the event that, that are going to need, you know, support from a, an emergency viewpoint, but it's, uh, you know, I think that those, those, that all begins in the data and the metrics and, you know, the, the, the lines that are drawn around the campus saying, you know, it takes this long to get from here to there and that that's not going to change. So what do we do to improve that process and make that, you know, a shorter distance? So I think, I think those, those, that, that, that concept is very important to this whole planning process. And really you need to sort of implement it and keep it in mind throughout the entire process. 
Randy, I don't know whether uh, Jean Huddleston, and I'll have to call her, she's such a dear friend, whether she pioneered the term opportunity for improvement, but when she did the mild, the, the amazing work at the Mayo Clinic on mortality reviews and now has expanded to a global collaborative, uh, she found that the phrase or the term opportunities for improvement were way better than medical error or falling into that name, blame, shame cycle, which then polarizes academicians and doctors and nurses and, and that kind of thing. This idea of really being able to have an iron fist in the velvet glove, the iron fist that we are going to get better no matter what, let's do it, but the velvet glove in being able to be sensitive to the feelings of those that are involved and say, look, we're not, we, you know, we don't want to find out who did something wrong. We want to find out how we can fix the system so that we can do the right thing. Your thoughts on opportunities for improvement versus, versus errors in law enforcement and mistakes and that name blame shame cycle. It's, it's so important. What a, what an important thing that is. And it's, it seems like such a small thing and, you know, oh, you know, we're being too sensitive to people's feelings or whatever. But it's it's just an understanding of basic psychology that, you know, if if people feel accused, then they they automatically push back. They go on the defensive. And in a situation like emergency management, you know, we have exercises all the time. One of the first things we say in those exercises, this is a no fault exercise. You do the job the way you think you need to do it. And if things don't work out, that's an opportunity for improvement. There is no such thing as a perfect operation or a perfect exercise. There are always going to be things that don't go the way the plan projected, right? And that's what we do. We develop a plan for these things. And the person making that plan, either it's a you know ICS-201 form or it's an exercise plan or it's an after-action report, you know, when they're doing the planning process for those incidences, you know, they have a very specific goal in mind. They have a picture in their mind. And as an emergency manager, you really have to say, okay, this is what I want to see, but it's that I already know it's not what I'm going to see. That's why we have the evaluation process that we have to go through that. It's, it's, we're not looking to find fault in people, not at all. We're looking to test a system and make a determination on how that system works and what we need to do to improve the system. That's not an error. That's not a mistake. That's how the system is designed to work. Anybody who has an exercise without significant after action and improvement planning didn't plan that exercise good enough because you're never, you're always going, that's the whole objective of that point. I, I, I read a book called, uh, um, uh, ex extreme Ownership, which is a, a really good book about um, leadership by a former Navy SEAL. And that's one of the things I really took from that, that, that I've really applied to my leadership style is that the, the boss is always at I say at fault. I almost said at fault, but they're not. They're, they're always responsible that if people don't perform to the level of their expectation of the plan, there are all kinds of ways that you can find the issue there. It's never, and it's very, very, very rarely the competence or lack thereof of the people. It's a lack of training. It's a lack of equipment. It's a lack of organization. It's a lack of making sure everybody understands the plan. It, there's all kinds of things that, that go into there. And that always comes up to the, the management level. It's not on 
you know, re the responsibility of the leadership to say, okay, you did this wrong or you did this wrong. It's their responsibility to say, okay, what went wrong and what do we do to improve that in, in the future? So those, that phrasing of that is absolutely critical to that, that, that whole process, because if you put somebody who, you know, in an emergency operations center, everybody, it's not the emergency manager running that facility. I, the way I always say it is, is, you know, I buy the car, I keep it nice and shiny. I make sure all the switches work. I make sure it's well oiled. I make sure it's going to fire up the first time you turn the key, but I don't drive that car. A whole bunch of other people come into the EOC to do that. And these are people that don't do this on a regular basis. And, you know, I know we're going to talk a little bit about muscle memory in this whole thing, but it's, you know, these are people that, that very rarely are doing this. And even when they do do it and they learn it, they're only going to retain 60% of what they, they saw. So we can't begin this process by expecting everybody to be experts in, in that position. Now that doesn't apply to everything and something like medicine you know, where doctors are highly trained and they're held to a higher standard. I get that, the, the, you know, well, the, this accident should happen. You should have known better kind of thing. But it, the same principle applies. If you go to anybody and say, you know, you did this wrong, it's automatically putting people in a defensive posture. And if people are in defensive posture, they're not going to be part of the solution. They're not going to learn. They're going to be afraid for their jobs or they're going to be afraid for the consequences. And we can't put people in those positions. It's, you know, I mean, sometimes it works out that way and sometimes consequences do, you know, the, the errors are egregious enough for that to occur. But, you know, I think the majority of the time, it's just the human factor that we take out of it. And, that and, and you know, you see on the news all the time and the police are always the ones out there who are, who are taking the brunt of this and everybody second guesses them because the, the, the media puts a story out there about some police action. And I'm not saying in any way that every action by every law enforcement officer in this country is justified or legal or anything else. But it seems like there's always this sort of uh, armchair quarterbacking of how police do their job. And it's, it, I think, you know, that creates in the, the, the case of the police, I think that creates a, a huge strain on them. It makes it very difficult for them to do their jobs. It makes them second guess their jobs. And they're, they're put in positions where they need to make split second decisions and the 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 inability to make that split second decision because they're second guessing, you know, how it's going to be seen, that can be the difference between life and death. That's a very extreme example, but it, it, it applies across the board. So, you know, that's a long way of saying, yeah, I absolutely agree with that, that we, we, we can't. It's not about putting blame. It's about figuring out how to make the process better and and, you know, using what we use people to do that. Right. In, in exercises, we use our people to make mistakes so that we can find out or maybe not make mistakes. And a lot of times it's not making mistakes. It's really exposing gaps in the system that, you know, they didn't know what to do because that wasn't in the plan. And that's how we find it. It's so critical to the process, too. So, you know, for us, it's necessary in my my line of work. to, to Fantastic. To Fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. Boy, we want to make those mistakes. As a pilot, I can tell you, as you fly more and more sophisticated airplanes, you want to make those mistakes with a mentor by your side and not say, oh, you fouled up, you crashed the plane, but okay, let's go back and see wh where this cascade happened. So the, the topic of, we like to combine the concept of left of boom 
or left of bang uh, in the military of moving upstream from the bad events. And this was popularized. I don't know whether where it originated, but of the uh, IEDs that were harming so many of our soldiers and funding was sought by Congress uh, for armor, but yet many, many military were being harmed by these. And when they decided to go left of boom, that was to move up to find out who's making these things and what's going on. We combine the idea of left of boom with the four Ps. Our four Ps are prevention, preparedness, protection and performance improvement in their feedback loops. Um, uh, isn't that really important that we try to get l as far upstream as we can for primary prevention, something bad doesn't happen, or secondary prevention is we minimize harm. Uh, how do you tackle that on a big university? Well, it's really, you know, looking, first of all, what's the boom, right? Where is that boom going to come from? And, and you know, <laughs> what is it going to impact on the campus? I mean, you know, that sounds dramatic, you know, as the explosive reference, but, you know, left the boom might be the boom we had the other night on, on campus when one of our electrical vaults had a fault and we had a small explosion that blew the top of the electrical vault down and took out a quarter of our campus. Uh, you know, the, the, and we have plans in place for that. You know, I mean, we we always looked at um, and we've 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 developed and, and put a lot of resources into what we call our Black Star generator, which is going to allow us to maintain power on campus, you know, outside of our smaller generators that are all around the building. This is this is a system that's going to be able to provide that. Um, but what was the gap? Uh, well, we found out that without a active uh, power line, because the power line was was destroyed in the in the process, you can't get that power to where you need it to be. So there, there's you know having all that technology and that that nice generator is useless if you can't transmit that gener that that power across across campus. Um, so you know having that planning um you know in the process, and that's not I, we have an electrical you know power outage annex that we we develop that is not in there. That is something I learned from this process. All of our power outage—excuse me, our power outage annex—is based around that we will have power transmission capability across the campus. So this is an opportunity for us to improve our plan. Left. Here's your performance improvement loop, right? The event had to happen. And hopefully through collaboratives, we can learn from others and say, hey, we need to reconfigure our approach to this active assailant event. Hadn't even thought of the fact that certain doors could be locked or mm -hmm. uh, artificial intelligence generated body positioning can identify somebody before they get to the school and things like that. Yeah. And that's, you know, it's in the, in the case of the, the, the electrical ball, I was kind of getting to, you know, we're in the sort of the right of boom place, but we're doing it to get to the left of boom on the next one. But for the, the, the situation of an active assailant, I mean, that it's, yeah, looking at things, you know, doing these analysis, we, we are, are, are starting to look at the actual individual classrooms on campus in terms of their security. And, you know, we found we have something like 15 different types of doors across the university. You know, so saying, okay, we're going to have this one solution so people can lock a door, you know, they, I, they say, oh, you know, take your belt and wrap it around the closing device at the top of the door. A lot of doors don't even have those. So what happens if you're in a room with there? You're kind of like, oh, what do I do now? So there are varied solutions that, that have to be there. They could be as easily as having a, you know, rubber wedge doorstop. You can kick in behind the door um, or some other mechanism to secure that room. 
But then you get to the other side of the planning process where, well, what if the assailant is in the room and they can use those devices to, to secure the door to keep law enforcement from getting into the room? That becomes a, a question as well. So, you know, the, the, the planning process is, is, is definitely a complicated one, but having that worked out or at least having an idea of what the challenges are prior to the event left to boom is so much more important because if you don't have that, you know, you're, you're immediately reactionary to the, to the boom. When you're right a boom, it's now you're, you're reactionary because it's like, Oh, what do we do? We don't know what to do to this situation because the planning left a boom wasn't adequate enough to carry into a response plan. And, you know, so, yeah, understanding that concept is is super important. You, it, it's we see that all the time where you know a situation occurs, and you think, why wasn't there some level of planning behind this? But it's it's because people haven't really looked at the the possibility of that. We don't in emergency management. A, a successful emergency manager, I think, doesn't look at the probability. There is probability, of course. We do hazard vulnerability assessments that prioritize what the hazards are on campus. Uh, you know, I used to run a, a nuclear emergency response team for the county for the San Onofre Nuclear Emergency Plan. And I heard people, you know, who are in that response mechanism say, oh, this will never happen. This will never happen. We don't do that in emergency management. If we want to be successful, we say, what if it does? No matter how improbable the event would be, we have to say, what if it happens? And what are we going to do about it? And that is planning. And that requires a lot of different planning. And there's all hazards, things you can put into there. The elements of a plan are generally the same. Um, you know, it's how you write that plan is a little different than things you consider in that plan. Who's who in the zoo and who's going to be doing what um, is are the, the variables in there. But, um, you know, having that planning process and looking at any potential event on on an, in any institution, I say on campus, but in any institution or in the in the community, um, and saying, you know, what if this does happen? What are we going to do about it? Let's develop a plan. Even if that plan isn't perfect, it's going to be better than nothing when the boom comes. So having that, that's where we live in emergency management is, is left of boom. Hopefully that's where we stay. That's where we try to stay as much as possible. So what I'd like to do now is uh, go back to Chief Adcox for those of you that are uh, with us live, because I know that you all, uh, many of you are on shifts and have a designated time for us over the years uh, for 90 minutes and we finish, uh, we try to finish right on time. Chief, um, we'll continue on after uh, our 30 minutes uh, past the hour. For those on the podcast, uh, we'd love to have you continue, but Chief, what you heard from uh, from Randy and from uh, and from uh, uh, Dr. Boats about the uniqueness of our medical facilities and our universities, uh, as opposed to the schools, and, and what would you like to underscore that we've covered up to this point? Uh, well, I think they were both uh, spot on, and I think it, particularly Randy was giving us a lot of the the practical side, and so we always say, you know, you need to think strategically but act tactically. And so when you're dealing with these situations, you're going to think strategically, and that's where the concepts come up, these approaches come up, but you're going to act tactically by knowing, by being fluid and understanding that these things can, can switch on a dime. And so you need to know where the assailant is, et cetera. So I think that what they were saying was spot on. I also think that when you look at emergency management or getting left to boom, 
um, you really do you really do need to understand what probability is, but probability is not shouldn't be driving you because there are other things too. So if you were just looking at the probability of a of a um, of a of a, a young student. Uh, being in being harmed in an active assailant situation in an elementary school, for example, you know, you're talking about one in 600 million. Well, then you probably wouldn't even do any preparation. And that's just not, that's not reasonable in, to, in today's world. So we have to prepare. We have to get better. The other thing that I think that Randy was trying to point out was that in the planning stages and looking at things like in his incidents where he had the electrical problem, uh, as understanding, there's a lot more than just that generator. And looking at things holistically, looking at them systematically, you know, and 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 that's very critical. And the last thing is is that when you when you prepare for these events, they 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 don't just help you with one type of thing. So if we're getting really good at preparing uh, for an active assailant in a particular business, a particular school, uh, over a period of time, and continue to be not only have the competency when we do the training and get the systems in place and the, and the target hardening, the Swiss cheese, the layers that you talked about. But when we get past that, is if we can maintain the currency because kids change every year, construction comes into place, there's changes in leaders and staff and teachers. And because of all that, we keep that currency and then have a way to test the proficiency uh, on a regular basis then you're going to you're going to be able to take care of not only active incentives but there are many other things and that's the that is really the value of the medtech program the medtech program is a holistic program that touches all facets and it not only touches the active incentive particularly in the stop the bleed uh the the, the other types of medical uh, or first aid uh, provision but it does address uh the seven major causes of death in a school setting and so if you have all these pieces and parts in place and you do it in a system and if you and you have customized it to your environment, to your school, to your organization, you have the best chance of survivability. You have the best chance of, of, of taking care of the matter. And, and you also have, if you have the right parts and pieces put into place, you're going to be identifying potential risk ahead of time. That's the left of boom. You're going to be identifying the potential threats that are coming, uh, the, the the students that have been bullied, the students that seem to be outliers. The, the, you know, you're going to be working with not only the psychological people, the counselors, the teachers, the other students, but you're also going to be measuring the social media, measuring what's going on around you. There's a, there's a high probability that you're going to be able to identify a person that's 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 moving up that pathway of violence, a person that's moving up that pathway of of, of harm. And by the way, that pathway may not be that I'm going to come out and harm you. It may be that I'm going to harm myself. And so suicidal ideation is very critical. Obviously, more people die from suicide than, than any other way, particularly when you're dealing with firearms. So we need to be very cognizant of that left of boom, what presents as a threat, how do we get people help in advance? So it's really holistic. What we're talking about today is the part of, of okay, all else has failed. And now we're having to do secondary prevention. And now we're having to deal with this, this issue of an active assailant in our environment. And so that's important, but it's also important to remember, make it much larger, make it a system, a system process, looking at it and how do we do our very best to prevent it to begin with. And very few of these incidents will, will we find in the end when we do our post-mortem, we do the performance improvement, as you say, very, very few of these incidents that we did not have 
some precursor in advance that we knew about. And so that's why, you know, having robust threat management capability, threat assessment, threat intervention, uh, threat identification is very critical. So, Bill, one, one, uh, one last quick question of you. Uh, you all are really pioneering some of the de-escalation methodologies uh, when you do have early warning of something uh, unraveling. You want to just address why that has to be part of a plan as well, and people need to be skilled at de-escalating events that then could uh, move to violence and, and could be stopped? Well, de-escalation is, 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 should be in everybody's toolbox. I mean, it should be a primary uh, methodology that you use. And sometimes you might call it verbal judo, you might call it verbal de-escalation, you might call it other things, but, but overall de-escalation is very critical. And specifically in, in, when you're dealing in high tense, high, high uh, stress situations, uh, or you're dealing with, with individuals that are in mental health crisis and understanding that, or dealing with individuals that are on the, uh, the, the spectrum and, and there's different approaches and different. So you have to be able to understand how to identify it as quickly as possible. And it's in your approach, it's how you, how you approach it. I always use the, 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 um, the example of, of, of we had an individual that was trying to access the president of the institution. And this individual was in crisis and really believed that he, he had discovered the cure for cancer and was going to get in to see the president at all costs. Well, we responded, brought the right people to the table. We actually asked this individual, we're talking, so we'll, we'll, we'll get you in, we'll, we'll get you in to see the president, but let's have a little talk first. Let's figure this thing out. And we asked him if he was hungry. And he said he had we knew he hadn't eaten in days. We took him to the cafeteria, sat down, bought him a meal, had a really good conversation, built that rapport, and actually were able to go to his car and actually retrieve a, a, a loaded weapon with about another hundred rounds of ammunition. Wow. And he told us specifically that he was going to get in there if he had to, even if he had to shoot people to get to the president. And so we were able to not only get him help, but we got his family engaged. We got him, we got him back on some medications. He had lost his job, his, his research grant went away. And, and today, this young man is a very, very successful researcher at, at another location, and, and we still get thank you from it. Again, it's how you approach it. It's making sure that you de-escalate how you're going to get to the situation. So you need to look at it. Uh, it's, it's important to understand that you're dealing with human beings that are in crisis and that you need to be there. You never know what some human being, what some person is going through at any given time. So you need to be kinder to the individual than you than you have to be, and you need to be more more res responsive and receptive to what's going on. And even if they treat you very badly, because that's 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 even more of a sign that there's a problem with with what's going on. And so these are things that we teach. These are things that we we do de-escalation training all the time. Every one of our police officers or they, they come on when they can meet their two years of service. They they become mental health certified officers. Uh, they all receive de-escalation. They all receive bias, uh, uh, anti-bias training. They receive able training. Uh, you, you can think about it. We we train in this environment a lot more than uh, actually we've had studies done. Where we we train twice as much as most other police departments in the country, and the reason being is because you you really one is you got to get people out. You got to get people a, a respite. Get them out of the field. Get them into training where they can take a breath, and then they they learn these skills so that they don't become atrophied. And that you understand their purpose at all times. So yes, de-escalation is is critical. Great, Bill, and thank you so much for uh, kind of pioneering and being a pathfinder in this emerging threats uh, uh, area and uh, role modeling for our medical centers. 
we are on time now to close for those that have been doing their CME and CEU credit uh, course. We'll extend uh, with uh, Randy Steiner for those that want to stay on uh, in the podcast. Uh, uh, Jennifer Dingman, would you like to kind of close the uh, the 90 minute session and then we'll go back to Randy Steiner and then finish up. Thank you, Dr. Denham. What a great webinar you had today. This is so important that we all know this information. Again, I encourage you to please share the, um, the, the, the audio of all of this and of this webinar when it's up and running with your colleagues, friends, neighbors, and family members. Please be safe and please take everything that was said here today at heart because it is so important. I thank you all for coming. God bless and we'll see you next month. Thank you very much. And thanks for the steadfast support of this program, uh, Jennifer, and all you do in patient safety. So uh, the, the formal uh, CEU CME program uh, will stop to now for 90 minutes. However, if you uh, extend, you'll also get credit for that and just let us know that you attended uh, the full session. So we close our formal session with uh, the expression, fight the good fight, uh, finish the race, uh, and keep the faith. We've got to do that as we battle failure to rescue and medical uh, harm. Um, everyone is a patient, and we like to say that everyone can be a caregiver. And in our resources, additional resources, we address the med tech uh, materials uh, that, uh, that we have regarding uh, our uh, family lifeguard program, and then the topics that we cover of the eight leading causes of death. And as Bill said, uh, the, the eight is uh, this uh, major trauma uh, that occurs. So uh, for those that stay with us uh, on the podcast, uh, uh, thank you. And we'll uh, continue on with uh, Randy Steiner. Fantastic. And one of the concepts that a lot of people don't understand who are not professionals in your field is the critical importance of a layered approach. Using the Swiss cheese model popularized by James Reason, I have the honor of actually spending some time with him and, and learning from him and talking about this idea of the layers with holes in the, in the layers of the cheese. And then the fact that those holes shrink and get smaller and bigger over time uh, and how important it is, and we've applied it to COVID, but these layers of defenses, not any one defense will catch everything, but if one has a layered approach and maintains that, uh, the value of a layered approach, Randy, one, one shoe doesn't fit all and one solution's not gonna fix the problem. Yeah, and, and sometimes layers break or you know they go offline or you know things can happen. So, you know, it, you're, you're talking about the layered approach and having you know, those things, I just call that redundancy. And having you know that 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 second layer of defense that if you know always have a system where if your primary doesn't work that you have a, a secondary and if secondary doesn't work have a tertiary and sure there's a limit to how far you can go but things like communications you know we have a, a, a an alert system that we can get messaging to all the people on the campus if they have a, an SMS device registered with with our our account most of them do not all of them. Um, but what do we do about that? Okay, if that device goes down or that system goes down, we're a, a, a IPOS, which is the Federal Wireless Emergency Communication System. We're an alerting agent, so we can you know send out messages to there. It's not as precise as our current system, but there's a way to do that. You know, for people who aren't 
registered on a system. How do we get messages to them? Well, we can put up speaker systems, which is something we're, we're looking to do here at UCI and you know, get, be able to give verbal commands. We have alertist beacons all over campus that are in the bigger classrooms where we can disseminate messages to people in those rooms and give direction to them. You know, Even directed messages right to those specific classrooms and not the entire campus if we wanna say not alert an active shooter to what, what we're telling people to do. Um, you know, our radio systems, we have multiple types of radio systems uh, where in an emergency event, you know, I can request mutual aid, even if the phone lines are down or cell towers are down, or I can, you know, get help from the county or from the state. I can go directly to them with high frequency radio, which only requires an antenna and a, you know, a generator to work. If not, you know, I have other radio systems that I can, I can work with and then we're, you know, tied into the county radio uh, structure to be able to use their system if we need to or tie into that. So yeah, that layered approach, never say this is what we're going to do and this is our ultimate solution because all it takes is for somebody to trip over a plug and now you don't have that solution anymore. So, you know, layered defense and building redundancy into your system, I, it's critical. It is crucial to making sure that you have a really hardened system and any, you know, def any any hardened building, any a military building or or you know intelligence building, they have they put these into into you know into um, action. You know, it's very rarely if you go to the CIA in Langley, Virginia, you're not going to see you know, a whole bar of Constantina wire and a whole bunch of armed military standing outside the building every 15 feet. But you're going to come up to a hardened building with limited ingress and egress. And when you get to that building, you're not just going to be able to walk into offices and start talking to people. You got to go through a whole process. Are exactly. there armed, are there armed guards in there? Absolutely. If you decide to breach those first couple of lines, are you going to meet those armed guards in the most unpleasant way? Absolutely. But that's that's because it's a layered approach. You know, we don't want to put everything out front because what if something happens? And all of a sudden that layer is gone. Now you don't have any defense. So, you know, that's an extreme way of looking at it. But from a, you know, just an emergency response perspective, we still have to have that too. We have multiple ways of doing it. We train people to use our computer systems to, to develop incident action plans and go through the emergency process in the EOC. But we also train them to be able to pull out a piece of paper and write a 201 or some other type of incident documentation, uh, you know, because a pen and paper will always work. So, you know, that's that's part of that redundant system is not just the the, the physical systems in place, but the training that you provide your, your, your people to say, hey, if this system goes down, this is what you fall back to. And ultimately, you know, comes right back to the, the very, very basics. Fantastic. Um, as we talk about putting a plan together, uh, we talk about when we work with doctors and academicians, and we like to use a model report, report design that they can relate to. And we've used the SOAP model, subjective, the interviews, the, the qualitative information, the O is objective, the data, as you said, the distance from uh, an AED to a location. Can we, can we be under three minutes from drop to shock or three minutes from gunshot to stop the bleed? Uh, and that's the objective data. And then the assessment is a SWOT. What, what are the strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats? And then the plan. And then being able to teach leaders about awareness. Everybody needs to be aware of the performance gap. That's the first A, awareness. Then accountability. Who's accountable, accountable for closing the gap? 
And then ability, what resources, financial, educational, uh, uh, inspirational, mentorship, whatever, that can really make them able, that's the third A. And then the final A is action. What are the line of sight actions that will close those gaps? Is that a reasonable approach knowing that you've got all of these players at a medical center, at an academic center, at um, administrative people, and then uh, and then frontline folks, an enormous turnover at a, at a university? Yeah, yeah, it's 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 a huge part, you know, of, of of the issue. I think that you know one of the most important things to do that, not to put too much of a you know overemphasis on on what I do, but you know, having an emergency manager is really important, no matter what the level of your organization is, and not just treating that emergency manager as you know uh, other duties as assigned, but you know, creating a position for that person who's going to be the coordinator of all these things. You know, I mean, you talk about planning and 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 understanding the planning process is so important, you know, throughout the level. And that's something an emergency manager can kind of explain to people is what is the, the planning process? How do we develop these plans and what are these plans going to look like? Uh, you know, and I, I always take the opportunity every chance I get to, to, to say that, you know, a plan is scalable, it's flexible and it's adaptable and it's not in the weeds, as we say. A plan is a a idea it's a concept of operations and that's what it says there's a section in every good plan that says concepts of operations it doesn't say this is exactly what we're going to do it says this is our concepts that we have to look at to be able to put forward the response capabilities that we need to deal with this situation and we need to train people to do that and we need to train people to think that like that to say that you know you're not going to be told exactly what to do every step of the way. That's not possible. The same earthquake can hit the same epicenter at the same magnitude on two different days, and it's two completely different disasters. You're not going to be able to say, oh, we did this last time and apply it right there. So, you know, that that's first and foremost, that's got to be really, you know, in the planning process is to, to keep it high level and keep it the ability to transform to the incident. Um, you know, not the expect the incidents transformed your plan because that's that's never going to happen. Well, you know, uh, Randy, as a pilot, I can say if you and I were here in Orange County and had to fly to New York, we would fly a, we would file a flight plan that we would submit to air traffic control. But 100% of those plans are changed in route because of all of the dynamic changes that are occurring throughout the air traffic control system. But you plan your flight, fly your plan, plan gets adjusted, but because you did the planning, you have the resources, the fuel on board, and you looked at alternatives and you're much better prepared, even though your plan will be changed by somebody else, which I think is shocking to people who are at high level that think, oh, well, if you didn't follow the plan, well, Randy's got a plan, but all the circumstances changed and they had to adjust the plan to the circumstances. So, let me shift gears with that now and just cover uh, highlights of our uh, of our remaining topics. Um, we talk about fixed structures versus dynamic systems. Your job really is not dealing with a plan to a static footprint and you're done. No. Isn't it correct that you you are actually having to manage something that is entirely flexible and resilient to many dynamics? factors, and that's really the subject matter of today's day uh, that we're covering, is uh, static versus dynamic. And that that is, it's especially on a college campus, it's it's such an important thing to, to understand. Now, is there an easy solution to it? No. 
I can tell you that because uh, that's something that's a nut we've been trying to crack for a long time. But, you know, um, you say things in terms of like evacuation. How are you accountable for people on the campus? Um, and it's just as easy to say, oh, well, you give somebody in the building the authority to be the building manager, or the evacuation coordinator, you give them a hard hat and a vest and a clipboard and they just go out and find out who's there and who's not there. Well, when you're in a a entire campus community, a, a, a large area with, you know, many, many, many buildings and the, the, the personnel content of that building changes roughly every 50 minutes or hour and a half or so, depending on what day of the week it is and what class is in session. <clears throat> Excuse me. That's a very difficult thing to do. How do we retain that accountability? How do we make that accountability? And, you know, we had a process at UCI for a very long time about, well, that's what we do. We give somebody a clipboard, they go around and, and take the responsibility for the accountability of several hundred people in a building. And it wasn't working. It was stressing people out. They felt like they were going to fail at their job because it's it's not a there's no way to be successful at that. You know, if you can't have 100 percent accountability, accurate accountability, then you're not you don't have accountability. So, you know, we kind of had to wrap our heads around that and say, OK, well, what do we do you know, to, to figure this out? And how do we how do we get to that point? And we had a, um, a structure in place where it was really on our evacuation coordinators and people we call our zone crew, which are these awesome people who volunteer to help get people out of the building and and, you know, get people to assembly areas and keep people safe from fire apparatus and sort of have an understanding of of, you know, the evacuation process a little more than everybody else. But they were the only ones that knew about these things. We would train them extensively and they knew about it. But the people that were in the buildings didn't have any level of training. We didn't have a single resource on this campus to tell people how to evacuate a building or what was expected or what was the difference between a fire alarm and an alertist beacon. To do to explain that a little bit, we have every year we do the Great California Shakeout, which is an earthquake exercise where we send a message via our ZOP mail, which is our SMS alerts, and our alertist beacons to classrooms saying, great shakeout, everybody duck cover and hold on. Hopefully that's kind of what we want people to do is to get down and, and play for a couple of minutes. And then we send a, a, a close out. Thank you for participating. And that's that. I had a professor who, who after we did a great shakeout a couple of years ago, was very, very angry at me because he uh, dismissed his class because he thought that the alertist beacon that was going off, which was merely delivering a message on what to do, was an indication to evacuate the building. He was equating that beacon with a fire alarm. Now, I could say, what's wrong with you? You know, it's not a fire alarm. What are you doing evacuating? But instead, I said, well, you know, you can't, you don't train them, you can't blame them. And that's what happened here is there was no no, no training or, or resource out there for anybody to know that there was a difference between, you know, th th things on the wall and it's beeping at you. It's very easy to say, I'm going to evacuate. Especially under stress. I mean, yeah, exactly. Just, yeah. So yeah. having that, you know, being able to, to, to look at these things and really kind of analyze it. Now we've put together a training video that is going to be a required training for everybody in the campus community at UCI. So everybody understands what the expectation is to evacuate. We've called out the difference between our technology and what it means. If you hear, you know, you should do this, you should shelter in place, that's different than secure in place and what the two mean. So we've put that all together and we've really taken the onus 
off of our poor zone crew who are taking all of this mantle of people, the protection of these people and their safety onto their shoulders. You know, we had an incident in one of our big libraries where it was a legitimate fire alarm. Somebody pulled the fire alarm. They evacuated the building. And this was early when I got to UCI and I wanted to see what, you know, the assembly areas were looking like. And I went over to the building and the building manager was standing there. And this was, you know, almost 40 minutes after the alarm went. I said, so how'd the evacuation go? And they said, well, it's still going on. These zone crews are still in there checking every single room in this library. And that that cannot happen. And but they thought that's what their job was, was to risk their own lives to 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 get make sure everybody else was out. And that is not their job. We've we've really streamlined that message of your job is to get people out and or is to get yourself out and to take as many people as you can with you. And in terms of the accountability piece, well, you know what? Supervisors should know where their staff are. Professors should know who was present in class that day. You know, we have these resources there to at least get some level of accountability. And if we can't get full accountability, being able to, to, to communicate that to first responders and say, well, this person is in this office, that's probably a good place to start looking for them and making sure that they know that there may be an accountability issue and that they may need to go into search and rescue mode before they start fighting the fire. Um, Fantastic, it, it, absolutely. Like that, simplifying the process and, and putting the onus on everybody, giving everybody the knowledge they need to protect themselves. That's so important. Important. So population kinetics, this is something we really have to teach leaders about. When we look at population kinetics, the movement of people, we not only need to look at evacuation. I had to look at extrication. I came onto a head-on crash last week and had to get a, a lady who was trapped in the car out of a car that was starting to smoke. And we were worried that it was to, you know, to be on fire. Uh, and the kinetics of all of the cars that were in the four lanes of traffic, uh, you need to really kind of understand if an event occurs because scene safety was critical and this accident covered all four lanes and people were still trying to kind of work their way through. And the, when there's a crisis, the movement of people is important. And Michael Doran taught us about not only population kinetics before an event occurs, but the danger during the event, and then run, hide, fight may have certain factors of risk with it, depending on the population, kinetics, movement of people when they're under stress and when an event occurs. Um, the critical importance, uh, Randy, of being able to teach leaders about population kinetics during normal operation, during an event and after an event, and how we need to keep everybody safe. Yeah, well, that's been, you know, an issue for a long time when, especially, you know, back, back around 2017, I was working with uh, the, the governor's office of emergency services. I was a deputy regional administrator and I was deployed up to uh, Mendocino County and Santa Rosa, Coffee Park, places like that had been devastated by these wildfires. And there was questions at that time because a lot of people thought that, you know, evacuations weren't issued fast enough or, you know, that they were issued too soon or too late or, 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 you know, whatever things about that when you're talking about that that sort of the the movement of, of people that it's such an important uh you know concept because i don't think a lot of people really understand that but one of the most dangerous parts of any disaster is that mass evacuation people get killed in those mass evacuations there are car accidents that wouldn't have happened otherwise there are other issues that occur you know people will get stressed have heart attacks i mean you you there are it's a dangerous thing to say. So it's not something you can just say as a, as a catch-all, say, okay, there's a fire up here, we'll evacuate this whole population. You know, you're, you're 
you're making a big, big issue with that. There's, there's potentially, you know, catastrophic possibilities with that as well. So understanding, you know, that, that movement of people piece when you're, when you're planning on, on any type of event or, you know, particularly a, an active shooter type of situation, um, you know, a lot of the, the thought processes in an active shooter event is that they're going to come in and they're going to hit the fire alarm, which is going to, you know, cause people to come right, right to them. Right. That's part of the process. You know, that, that's a, a very difficult thing to, to get around. You know, we're training people on one side and if you, you hear a fire alarm, get out of the building now, but these, these potential shooters know that too. So, you know, how do we train people around that? I don't know. There, there's a, a you know a lot of discussion. We're at the beginning of the beginning of it, aren't we? But we but yeah. population kinetics, I think, has got to be a big factor. Yeah. Let me shift. Let me shift gears to. Let me address special events. You at the university have some very special big events. Population kinetics change dramatically. You've got concentration of uh, folks. And uh, I just want to address the fact that your fixed AEDs, stop the bleed kits, fire extinguishers, et cetera, can't be enough when you've got a concentration of souls in a certain, we always say, how many souls on board when we write an IFR flight plan? How many souls are in a tight place that's a new location? So what about what, what's your advice to folks to consider special events, graduations, concerts, uh, sporting events, those things that really require standby EMTs and these other things? Well, having those resources, first of all, I think are, are really important. And being able, like you said, you know, a lot of AEDs are in a cabinet on a wall. But, you know, you can you can make an AED a mobile, uh, you know, it, a thing. It's something you can put in a case, you know, like we do with our care cases. With, with We have our, our Eagle Scouts putting together right now. We can we can have those kind of resources that you can put on a golf cart, and move it wherever you want and make a make a stand. Making sure that you have, you know, some resources for medical emergencies, particularly because in the even in the absence of a, a disaster event, oftentimes, uh, large events like commencements or, or concerts in the park or things like that, there are medical issues uh, caused for a variety of different reasons. So you need to have a plan in place for that. Uh, but also, you know, an event plan, your, your security plan, you know, making sure that you have the resources to respond if something does happen, you know, internally, what are you, what's your internal uh, operations going to look like if, you know, there's, you know, a fight. It doesn't have to be an active shooter. It doesn't have to be something dramatic like somebody planning a bomb. It could be a bunch of people get drunk and start fighting and all of a sudden you got 20 people, you know, causing mayhem for everybody. You know, how do you deal with that? And, and you know, having a plan in place to address those things and, and being able to get people to safety because that's ultimately what the plan is. Does that mean physically moving people out of the location? Possibly, but just as easily it could be having people shelter in a location. So being able to not only have those plans in place of you know what op operational and tactical aspects you're going to apply to any particular situation, um, but being able to address them in in, in various ways. Um, the second piece of this is is the communications to the individuals. You know things like commencement. You have family members coming on campus. They they haven't taken our emergency preparedness video, for example. They haven't gone through the the same level of training. They're just people coming on campus to see their their family members' graduation. They're not going to be there for very long. Maybe a few hours. Maybe a couple of days. 
Um, but making sure that they have the resources to become informed themselves and getting those resources to people who are attending these events to say, you know, in the event of an evacuation, this is where you're going to go, as opposed to have, trying to get people to figure it out the other day up, giving people the capability to tie into your emergency alert system, you know, on a temporary basis. We've recently upgraded our alert, alert system platform because it had that capability that we could assign temporary you know, registration capability to people coming on campus. So that if there was an alert, we'd be able to make sure as many people got the the message and the direction as possible. So yeah, those events are, are always a big thing. But you know, I think in a lot of ways they're they're even easier to plan for in terms of the 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 kinetics because it's people generally in a fixed location, generally they're getting there through you know pre-identified routes. So those those events can actually be a little easier to plan for than just even just the average day to day when people are moving around campus, you know, more randomly. Um, but they certainly come with their challenges, and you know, having a plan in place prior to any event is is a necessity, and it's got to include security, it's got to include safety of people in the event of evacuation, it's got to include some medical support for any medical issues that occur. So. So unanticipated surge events, I would love for you to kind of address uh, the wonderful response you had with COVID being, uh, you, you had you were prepared for the surge that then the emergency departments uh, addressed and uh, many of our medical centers weren't prepared, but the unanticipated surge events of say pandemics, but also regional mass casualty and even earthquake here where we are in California, but it might be hurricanes in Florida or, um, or in Texas or uh, along the Southeastern coastline. Um, any tips on the unanticipated surge event, which we really do need to anticipate? Yeah. Well, having the um, emergency operation capability is so important. You know, having either an EOC or an well, having an EOC or you know maybe a departmental operations center or even a command post and a group of. Andy, would you people. stop right now, please? Real, oh, stop. Yeah. Now we're gonna. I'm gonna re-ask that question. Okay. I think Charlotte came in behind me there. So I'm going to read. So I'm going to just clap so I can see it on the audio for editing. Got it. So Randy, what about the unanticipated surge events? You all did a terrific job with COVID being a slow motion surge event, but also regional mass casualty events and say plane crashes or uh, earthquakes in Texas, Florida, along our southeastern coastline and our eastern coastline, uh, hurricanes, uh, any tips regarding unanticipated surge events? Yeah, that, well, it, you know, first and foremost, I think having that, that planning process in place, you know, we talked about that left to boom planning process, um, you know, conducting a hazard vulnerability assessment to address those potential hazards. You mentioned a plane crash. Well, UCI is right next to John Wayne International Airport. Are we really, have we ever had an aviation incident on the UCI campus? No, but like I said, emergency managers don't say we don't have this. We say, what happens if it do, if, if we do? You know, what any incident resulting in a mass casualty event, we have a mass casualty appendix that we can deal with this. For the physical incidences, like an earthquake, like a fire, like a, a uh, power outage like a, a you know wildfire is a different event um you know we have our annexes to our plan for that so we have our basic plan which is how we set up our emergency operations capability on campus and then we have our annexes which are the specific plan for that specific event the problem with that is sometimes 
different events overlap and it can get very confusing. That's why we have our appendixes to all those annexes to say that, okay, a fire can cause a mass casualty event, an airplane crash can cause a mass casualty event, an earthquake can cause a mass casualty event. We have this appendix that says, okay, in the event of a mass casualty event, here's how we're going to respond and apply it to that specific annex. So having that planning process and having a good solid plan put together, once again, flexible, adaptable, scalable through all components of that plan is the first step in that process. The second step is having a good trained emergency operations center uh, or a departmental operations center or even a command post is with people that are trained who can do incident planning on the fly. We have a whole process that we train our staff to, which is called developing an instant action plan. And this is where you have your response plan. The incident action plan is, okay, the incident has happened. Now, how do we deal with it? And what are we going to do going forward? This is the plan that is more in the weeds. It's about what's the situation right, right now? What are our priorities? What are our objectives? How are we going to meet those objectives? What resources do we need? How do we get this information up to leadership? And that's the process through, through which we do that. So having a process, and there's many resources that, that FEMA and other emergency response organizations put together to develop these plans, but being able to develop that short and even long-term plan based on the situation is super important. That's what we did for COVID. And believe me, we had a pandemic plan. We could have made paper airplanes out of it. it you know, we had nothing when we built that plan, that no understanding of what the reality of a global pandemic was going to be. I can tell you that. Um, so our COVID response, where I consider it being very successful was we were, it was a, a good example of building the airplane while it was in the air um and we kind of well, you all did a terrific job uh and uh we're so proud of uh, one of our teammates there the emt uh, paul batia did you know i mean talk about a student stepping up being on camera sure, yeah. representing the university when you developed the accessory hospital or auxiliary care facilities you all did a terrific job there competency currency Let's talk about that now. You and I both are uh, Stop the Bleed instructors and uh, CPR instructors in our MedTech program, MedTech instructors for the eight leading causes of preventable death. Um, this issue of the perishable nature of the knowledge and the skills, the fact the studies are showing that even if you do a really good course, your testing competency, that you've got to do it like we do in aviation. I'm an IFR certified pilot, but I'm certified. I'm not current. If I'm not current, meaning I haven't shot a, a certain number of approaches or been with a with an instructor, uh, a, a pilot in training, uh, I'm not legal. So I can be certified, not current, not legal. And I think a lot of us are certified in CPR and stop the bleed, but it's been so long since we had that training that uh, that those skills are perishable. Is it reasonable to focus on competency currency? Oh yeah, you know and that's when in all of my my CPR classes and stop the bleed trainings that I do, I really discuss that and say you know it's it's what we call muscle memory, right? It's doing the same task repetitively until your body knows how to do it, so you don't have to think about it as much. I can tell you where this came into uh, real importance with me was they you know I was uh, but a young marine on the border of of Kuwait and Saudi Arabia, sitting in a tank, which I later drove across a very hostile Southern Kuwaiti desert. Um, that didn't happen because 
they put me in a tank and said, okay, you're going to go there. That happened because for months and years prior to that, I was going to the field every day. I was qualifying with my weapons. I was becoming competent in that tank. I knew every bolt, every nut of that tank. I knew how every weapon worked. And I had a team in that tank and a crew, not only at the, the tank level, but at the company and battalion level uh, and platoon level that I, I worked with every day. So we built that confidence. So when the time came to actually go into enemy territory in Kuwait, I just fell back to that muscle memory. I fell back to that training. So I know that that works. So we have to develop that. Now, I know that's an extreme example. Most people hopefully are never going to have to be in that position, but it's kind of the same thing, right? You know, when you look at Route 99, you know, that's right on the edge of being a, a combat zone. When you have people firing bullets at you and, you know, you've got people on the ground and are bleeding out, you know, you're not going to have a lot of time to think about what to do. You have to know what to do and you know what to do by fighting like you train. That's what we say in the Marine Corps or by training like you fight. And that's, you know, that's where it all comes in. I tell people in my CPR classes that, you know, we're not going to you, you ever have to do this. It's most likely not going to be in a nice air conditioned conference room with a whole bunch of your colleagues surrounding you. It's going to be, be beside a freeway where cars are traveling at 70 miles an hour, two feet away from you, or it's going to be outside of a burning building, or it's going to be on a, a pool deck with some little kid that they just pulled out of the deep end whose mom is standing right behind you screaming about do something to save my child. That's the reality of it. When those situations occur, you have to just be able to react. You have to know what to do. So I address that in a couple of different ways. First of all, I do train the ABCs. I go through the, okay, do this first, do this second, do this third. But as I'm doing that, I try to train about the concepts. You know, I just don't train people about, okay, you put your, your thumb like you did, Chuck, and, and, and you thrust up. You know, you understood the concept behind that. You understood there was an airway, there's a blockage, here's the mechanics of it. You know, you understood how the, how the, the, the action of the Heimlich was creating the, 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 the process to make it, make it work, you know? So it's the concepts. I think if you understand the concepts, first of all, it's easier to develop a response because very rarely is it going to be ABC. A lot of times it's going to be ADB, you know, it's going to be all over the place depending on the, the type of situation. So there's that uh, in the training process, in the initial training process, making people sure that people understand why they're doing what they're doing because that will make it easier for them to do it when they have to do it if they understand why it is that they're doing it uh the second part of that is to provide opportunities for competence and we're very lucky at uci because we have student events we have our anteater ems like paul batia used to be the leader of an outstanding young man and an outstanding group of, of young people on campus that are all certified emts that just want to do what they they can do to help the campus um you know they they are a huge training asset for us they have resources they have training devices we can bring them into our student engagement fair for example and we can have a you know, a, a training device is to have people walk by and say, okay, you know, you, you took stop the bleed training because we had it online. Now, you know, practice here. That was four months ago. You know, when'd you take it? Four months ago. Okay. See if you still remember to put a tourniquet on. And it's going to amaze people that I still remember how to do that, first of all. And secondly, you know, it's going to really give you an idea of, of you know, how perishable those, those, those skills are. Um, but having those opportunities, I think, um, to provide people with with the ability to get 
you know, maintain that confidence from the training, I think is really important. It's not always easy. I mean, you know, taking a, a campus of 55,000 people and, you know, making sure that they're, you know, given an opportunity every quarter to, to train is, is not difficult or it's very difficult, but it's, it's not impossible. It's, you know, we can, we can develop, you know, innovative ways of doing that. Even if it's, you know, let's watch a video on it. That's not the competence we're talking about. You have to do things to get that muscle memory. Absolutely. But if it keeps it in their mind, you know, that, that can be part of the process, but having the ability to, and the capability to have people practice those skills and, and fight like they train or train like they fight, I think is, is it's, it's, it's critical to that process. You know, you could do a, a huge campaign to get 55,000 people trained up in CPR and stop the bleed. And in a year it's gone, you know, unless you have. And the that. turnover is so great at a university. Yeah. I have to tell you, tell you, uh, Randy, uh, having taught Heimlich uh, since 2015 to kids and adults, everybody who I would say from eight to 80, uh, when my son was choking and it was really a life-threatening choking event, my heart rate didn't even go up because we've done it so much. Can yeah. you, you know, can you, can you breathe? Can you speak? Uh, my son was passing out and did the back blows, the Heimlich trust. My heart rate didn't even go up. Now my heart rate went up later that night when I really thought about the magnitude <laughs> of what almost happened, but, but the training really, really felt good. The counterpoint to that was, was we came on a head on crash uh, last week and I had to get a, a lady who was trapped in the driver's seat uh, uh, out of the car and we, and, and help take care of her mother who had uh, acute bleeding and the first aid kit and the hammer and the seatbelt cutter that I had put in my wife's car, we had taken out to replenish the supplies because we used up some of the supplies and hadn't put it back in the car. So this issue of readiness is of like, you know, of the discipline of readiness here, we teach it. And when I went, ran back to the car after I got uh, got the people out of the car to stop the bleeding on the elderly lady, the airbag had torn her chest open, uh, my bag my bag was gone. And I realized that was at the house because we were putting new gear back in the bag. Uh, we also, this weekend, went to one of our biggest churches in America and went around and looked at the trauma bags to see what we could give as a gift, my family could give to the church. And there was no consistency in what was in the trauma kits and the bags. So enormous opportunity that we really want to let people know. Final area, Randy. Regular simulation events, having regular simulation events. We know Mike Dorn has told us, look, no off-the-shelf program is going to help you. In fact, it could be a liability because if a plaintiff attorney convinces a jury that you didn't do what you learned or what you learned actually harmed people rather than help people, you've got liability. So two things, customizing what you do. And then building simulations customized to what you do with expert opinion is probably the best balance. But we're right at the beginning of the beginning, aren't we? There's no really standard. To say there are best practices is really a misnomer. There are practices that are evolving, and we've got to be really heads up on our simulations. So the short question is, regular simulation of value, and do we customize them? Yeah, and I think that you know there there are best practices, but there's a best practices for lots and lots and lots of different things. So while there's you know in any situation there's there's the best solution. How often is that solution you know picked? A lot of times it's just luck of the draw and the heat of a moment, right? So yeah, I mean there are 
ways to do things and we can, you know, that, that word best practices, you know, I use it all the time, but it gets thrown around a little much um, because yeah, it's really not about, I think falling back on best practices it is in being able to create those best practices based on the situation. And I absolutely agree with that. Uh, you know, we went through a period of time, um, you know, back in the, the, the nineties when it seemed like every, the 90s and 2000s, really up to the late 2000s, every exercise that I was involved in, every exercise that I'd seen that was a big, huge exercise, they were all the catastrophic earthquake scenario. Every single one of them. We drilled on that catastrophic earthquake scenario time and time and time again. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. What's the biggest threat? You know, well, what was perceived at one time as the biggest threat to Southern California was that catastrophic earthquake. You know, now we just found out that a catastrophic flood could cause just as much damage. And God knows in 2017 and 2018, wildfires did just as much damage in terms of property loss of life and, and injury as, as a catastrophic earthquake could have potentially done as well. Um, so yeah, we, the varying up those exercises and the, the scenarios based on those is critical to this whole process because we can't lock people into one way to deal with disaster based on a generic kind of scenario like an earthquake. An earthquake's not a generic scenario. It's very specific to some very specific issues. Um, so, you know, we always try to do that. You know, we just, and, and bringing people into the process too, you know, kind of making sure you have the community engagement in your exercise. An exercise that happens just in an EOC, that's training. I mean, you're training your EOC staff, but you're not really testing the system because the disaster isn't happening in there. It's happening out there. So you have to test your systems in the field as well. You know, I don't know of a lot of, you know, emergency management organizations have actually done a staging area test, which is a whole piece of it. If you're getting in equipment, you need to have people in there able and trained to track equipment, to assign equipment to certain places, to say that equipment is, is in ready to go or it's out of service, you know, to find people to operate that equipment. All those things have to happen. That's an exercise in and of itself. So exercising every component of your plan using various scenarios, various scenarios is super important and mixing those scenarios up. You do have to test every component of the plan. And sometimes that takes multiple exercises. So that's very rarely going to happen all in one exercise because that's a huge thing to do. Um, but making sure all those components, having a communications exercise and testing your communications plan, you know, having your your response part of it. You could do a whole exercise on just alerting your staff and getting them to the EOC and doing the first 10 minutes of, of an activation. Um, but, you know, we just uh, did an exercise at UCI, which is a very large scale exercise that was based around an evacuation center. It was a wildfire. We have just put together our campus wide evacuation plan, brand new plan. And we were testing that plan. So we engaged our, our folks who live in our University Hills community, which is a, a residential community attached to the university. Um, we got probably 30 or 40 people from there who volunteered to be transported via bus to a reception and care center um, to get registered. So we, we tested a whole bunch of components of our plan. We had our, our EOC was activated. We were developing our train or testing out our new EOC software. So our, our staff was able to, you know, work on that and to write an, an instant action plan. Um, you know, they, we, we tested all of those little components of it, but it was, it was, a uh, we mixed it up a lot. You know, the, the, the last exercise, um, well, last exercise was pandemic exercise actually that we did. And then before then it was the earthquake scenario, but, you know, 
it's really easy when you put together and a lot of work goes into an exercise of that magnitude, you know, a big full scale exercise or a functional exercise like we're talking about where you have people actually out in the field testing processes. A lot of logistics goes into that and a lot of planning. So it's really tempting as emergency managers to say, well, this was a great exercise last time. I'm going to pull that off the shelf and dust it off and we're, we'll run that scenario again. Um, you know, that that's not going to help. That's just, you know, reestablishing the same actions of for the same scenarios and it's not really training anybody to anything or teaching people how to how to be you know nimble in those situations you've got to throw those different different scenarios and different uh, angles at people to really get them comfortable in those positions and and what is a very uncomfortable position to be in and it's a it's, it's a hard thing to do but i think that's that's the key to it varying things up making things different, testing all the different pieces of your plan, no matter how small or insignificant they may seem at the time, those pieces become really significant when you need them. So, yeah, I, I, well, I, well Randy, at the, at the risk of uh, upsetting a view, future viewers who are football fans of other teams, I, I recommend the Tom Brady story, the goat, uh, greatest of all time. Uh, watched it a couple of times. And here's somebody that was uh, drafted as 199th draft pick in the sixth round, uh, you know, who people say was too slow, would never be a great quarterback, probably be a good quarterback. But it, his story underscores some of the things you said, uh, you know, practice at the speed of the game, right? Practice at the speed of the game. The other thing he did was even as a junior varsity, um, they took films and he would have uh, he would have lunch on Sundays with his mom making uh, lunch for the receivers. And they would watch the game films, even at junior, when they weren't filming, before they were really filming games, to look at their tells. How could they improve? Always kind of the first guy at the practice, the last guy there. Um, and uh, it really isn't that you have to be a superstar at any one of these things. It's really the discipline and dedication to be ready and be ready to adjust. And so, uh, Randy, thank you for being one of our great role models uh, in the country, uh, your service to our country, uh, the service your family has delivered to our country through um, through the, the trauma care systems, the acute trauma uh, response systems. And um, uh, we look forward to hearing from you more and thank you for uh, helping educate us today. No, thank you, Chuck. And thank you for doing this, the work on, these seminars, these are, are really important. I think they're just such an amazing resource for the community. So thank you for doing that. Thank you for letting me take part in it. All right. Take care. <laughs> Carry on. So we would like to thank you all for attending. Uh, and we will see you next week. We've already closed uh, uh, the session. Thank you for your attendance.